Black Museum. The third part of the season 4 finale of Black Mirror delves into the horrific digital incarceration of Clayton Lee, a man convicted for a crime he may not have committed. The sight of the holographic Clayton crouched in the corner in a catatonic state upon being subjected to countless electrocutions by rich, sadomasochistic, possibly even racist individuals, leaves you wondering as to whether or not you're looking at the future of the prison system. You know, one where people are held against their will and paraded to the masses, sometimes even for a fee. So is this an accurate depiction of the future? Or has this already occurred at some point in our history? And are we still living through it? I used to write my thoughts on paper, and then I wrote my thoughts on Twitter. And then I thought to myself, hey, why not talk about your thoughts? My name is Sarin, and this is my podcast where I talk about things that keep me up at night. Welcome to In 3, 2, 1. So there's this picture that goes around on Twitter, makes its rounds probably once every one or two years. Kinda like an eclipse, you know? Uh, fun fact, I used to think eclipses were like super rare, and they'd appear once every 15-20 years. Turns out they're actually pretty frequent. Anyways, this picture, yes, uh, I think you know what I'm talking about. It's a black and white picture of a little black girl, surrounded by white adults. Apparently it's a picture taken at a Belgian human zoo in 1958. Yeah, but here's what you probably didn't know. That picture was taken at the 1958 Brussels World Fair. A World's Fair is basically a huge international exhibition where countries showcase their achievements. If you were to ask me, it just sounds like a glorified flex fest. So yeah, the Belgians featured a Congo village which housed about 700 Congolese, and they were made to wear primitive clothing and use primitive tech. It didn't matter how civilized the Congolese were, to the Belgians of the early to mid 20th century, these people were backward savages. And, to top it all off, the entrance of the exhibition featured a bust of King Leopold II. Yep, the very same King Leopold under whose reign millions of Congolese died. Talk about tech, am I right? This isn't the only example of human zoos, however. These zoos were also known as ethnological exhibitions, and they were popular all across Europe and the United States. In fact, Belgium's World's Fair was no pioneer in displaying humans in their quote-unquote natural habitat. The 1889 Paris World's Fair in fact used at least 400 indigenous people as their major attraction. Now, before we brand human zoos as a purely colonial notion, here's an interesting bit of trivia. The first ever human zoo was probably found in Mexico in the early 1500s. It belonged to the Aztec Emperor Montezuma, who was said to have housed hunchbacks, albinos and dwarfs in the zoo. But then again, Montezuma's zoo was probably more famous due to its legendary size as opposed to its human specimens. As a matter of fact, a huge bulk of the Aztec human sacrifices were fed to his animals. It was said that he had about at least 300 mountain lions. So yeah, Montezuma not only pleased the gods, he also fed his animals, kept his animals happy. He killed two birds with one stone even before two birds with one stone was even a saying. Was Montezuma a sociopath? Oh, easily. But he was an opportunistic sociopath, though. Speaking of opportunistic sociopaths, P.T. Barnum. Yep, that guy. So, contrary to the movie, Barnum actually built his career as a showman by buying Joyce Hatt, a slave. He bought her in 1835 and turned her into a living human exhibit, 
claiming that she was 161 years old and had been George Washington's wet nurse. Now, I have no idea what the Americans were smoking back then, but damn, I want some of that. So yeah, the extent of his exploitation actually goes even further. Joyce, unfortunately, actually thankfully died a year later in 1836, but Barnum turned a dead body into a spectacle. She, he staged a live autopsy, where he then revealed that she was probably only about 80 years old. The greatest showman? More like the greatest conman. Now, Barnum may have owned up to his racist beginnings as he ventured into politics. He became a proponent for the anti-slavery movement. But he never came clean about his treatment of Joyce Heth. Now, you might think that the Americans may have sobered up at the turn of the 20th century, but nope. The case of Otabenga just proves that these people never really learned from the horrors of the previous century. Now, who was Otabenga? He was a Congolese pygmy. Now, what is it with Congo Congolese people and the horrors they've suffered from white people? I have no idea. But yeah, Otabenga was a pygmy of the Mbuti tribe, and he was famous for being a human exhibit in guess where? The Bronx Zoo. Yep, that's right. So he was placed amongst other primates, and he was touted as being the missing link between man and ape. He was even made to wrestle an orangutan. Now, here's the part that baffles me. Otabenga's exhibit was protested strongly by African-American clergymen. And that's the oxymoron? See, Otabenga was treated like an animal at a time when African-Americans were already beginning to live as free people in the States. So why did the Americans think that he was deserving of such treatment? Did their concept of humanity revolve around wearing pants and being Christian? And where exactly did these sentiments come from? Why did countries like France, Belgium, and the United States view the Southern Hemisphere with such disdain? Now, while Barnum's reasons for his exploitative ventures may have been personal, the same could not be said for the countless human zoos all over the Western world. The West um, prided in its ability to civilize the rest of the world and felt as if they were doing the world a huge favor in bringing them to the present. Now, I think some of you know what I'm talking about, but it's basically what they call the white man's burden. The White Man's Burden is actually the title of a poem written by Rudyard Kipling to advocate for American imperialism in the Philippines. Yeah, Kipling was British, but he loved colonialism so much he decided to become the West's spokesperson for imperialism. Now, it's actually hard to discuss Kipling these days without even mentioning his imperialist views. Many argue that the Jungle Book was nothing but a racist and imperialist diatribe about how the white man, depicted by Mowgli, was superior to the other races, the animals. In fact, in a poem titled Recessional, written for Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee, Kipling refers to non-whites as the lesser breeds. However, to give him a bit of credit, Kipling's sentiments towards imperialism and colonialism changed in his latter years. He lost his son in war and accepted his fair share of the blame in shaping Britain's views towards the rest of the world. Um, Kipling's legacy presents an interesting point in the debate about separating art from the artist. Now, you can't ignore his literary prowess. He was easily the best English author of his time. But he was definitely an imperialistic racist. But then again, he held views that resonated well throughout the Western world. Now, Kipling was born into luxury in India, and probably thought he was better off than the Indians who had had their country stripped bare by the Brits. I might be wrong though. Kipling actually loved India, viewed it as Eden and he hated having to go back to Britain. But the idea that white people were superior to the rest of the world claims to be grounded in science, in what we now know as scientific racism, 
This was a belief that used outdated methods such as anthropometry, the measuring of body parts, as well as craniometry, the measuring of the skull, to pinpoint differences between races and establish the idea that white people were intellectually superior. Now, early proponents of the idea of white superiority included the renowned biologist Carl Linnaeus. While he did not exactly refer to the other races as being inferior, he held this belief that his culture was better than that of the others. Now, it's not fun when the father of modern taxonomy is also seen as a pioneer of scientific racism. While we now dismiss scientific racism as pseudoscientific nonsense, these beliefs were popular back in the day and held great credibility. You see, the thing about science is it's more often not used as propaganda. Take the anti-vaccine movement, for example. They base their entire argument on a single scientific paper that's been repeatedly disproved. Yet, when you consider how they stand by their beliefs in the face of overwhelming evidence against them, imagine the power a pseudoscientific belief back then had, especially when faced with little to no objection. Scientific racism upheld the status quo of the white people, and thus was readily accepted by both scientists and the public. See, the idea that white people were superior stems from the belief that the first humans were white. This in turn comes from the biblical account of Adam and Eve, who somehow everyone in Europe agreed were white, kind of like the whitewashing of Christ. So this was a time when the out-of-Africa theory hadn't been proposed. Fun fact, many scientists and thinkers actually believed that the Africans were dark because they were horribly sunburned. Samuel Stanhope Smith, an American priest and prominent voice against racism and slavery, actually believed that the dark pigmentation of Africans stemmed from an increased bile production due to being in a tropical climate which resulted in their bodies being covered in a giant freckle. That's right. A man who was pretty, who I'm pretty sure wasn't racist actually thought that Africans were just covered in freckles. See, that's the thing, really. Many of the scientists were not exactly malicious in their views. They just believed in the scientific dogmas of their time. Johann Blumenbach, for example, was a prominent German biologist. He proposed that the human species was divided into five races, namely the Caucasians, Malays, Mongolians, Ethiopians, and Americans. He believed that Adam and Eve were Caucasians and that the physical differences between races were a result of environmental factors. Now, this idea was known as the degeneration hypothesis. Blumenbach also believed that all the races of men could revert back to the original Caucasian form through proper environmental control and proper diet. Blumenbach, however, was no racist. He was vocal against the idea that Africans were an inferior race, believing that they were just as capable as everyone else in terms of intellectual abilities. Fortunately, for every Blumenbach or Sanum Smith, there were countless other bona fide racists. Many of the American founding fathers, such as Thomas Jefferson, who were racist slave owners, wholeheartedly believing in the idea that blacks were inferior to the whites. Now, Jefferson, however, takes the cake the man who owned slaves in his private estate and called for scientific proof that blacks were inferior to the whites, was the very same man who wrote all men are created equal in the Declaration of Independence. Now, other thinkers such as Georges Cuvier, Franz Ignaz Brunner, and Ernst Haeckel alleged that the physical attributes of Africans meant that they were more closely related to other apes than they were to humans, which then became a means to justify their cruelty towards black people. See, these men weren't uneducated. They occupied the highest ranks of society and were some of the more prominent thinkers of their time. Thomas Jefferson was a polymath. He was just as adept at biology as he was in politics. Yet, these men were steadfast in their racial prejudice. 
made stronger by the scientific backing it received. It's funny how white, so much of white supremacism has its roots in what's practically nonsense. But then again, so is any form of supremacism. Now, some might argue that the prevailing scientific theories of that time should excuse the decades and centuries of horrors that the West subjected on the rest of the world. But is that really the case? Does the belief that a group of people is better than another group of people halfway across the world justify the murders and destruction they waged? It's pretty understandable that scientific racism may have misled many in the past. But it seems like a pretty weak excuse when you think about how people like Otabenga, Joyce Heth, and the little Congolese girl were treated. But while we may afford the past the slightest of leeways for their ignorance, I don't think you can say the same for supremacists of today. If you think about it, perhaps it wouldn't be too much of a stretch to lump modern-day supremacists with anti-vaxxers. Oh, wait. They've actually done that themselves already. So yeah, scientific racism in human zoos may be condemned of the past, but we aren't really out of the woods when it comes to the commodification of a racist culture at the benefit of another. I'm reminded of a story by Trevor Noah in his Netflix special, Son of Patricia, in which he talks about his time in Bali. He's, it's a pretty good show, and if you haven't watched it, you should. So yeah, this, this story. So this happened in 2012. Um, this happened before the world ended, yeah. So I went on a school trip with a bunch of kids from a Singapore, Singaporean secondary school. I don't know why they were there, but I'm not going to question it now. So we went to this farm in Kluang, Johor. It wasn't exactly a farm farm. It was more like a touristy farm kind of thing. This farm, as they called it, had stuff like archery, a petting zoo, and also what they called a jakun village, where you had, I think there were three tree houses, and then you had orang asli dressed in their traditional clothing, holding blowpipes and stuff like that. I didn't think much of it back then, but doing my research on this episode made me realize the stark similarities between this Jakun village and the Congo village of the Brussels World's Fair of 1958. The difference is, I guess, these people were doing it voluntarily. They probably got paid by the people who ran the farm. But there were also children there. Did they go to school? Did they have enough money to send their kids to school? What? Were their lives like outside the exhibit? How did they feel living as live human exhibits? These are questions I wish I asked earlier, but I didn't. Now, as I'd said earlier, these people were probably voluntary human exhibits. But what about people who are forced into places that they don't want to be in? What about the real-life Clayton Lees? There are suggestions that his story is an allegory of the prison system in the United States. But I think it's also reflective of another problem, one that's still rampant in this very day and age, one that involves a lot of drugs, a lot of violence, a lot of unwilling people, and a lot of death. But perhaps I shall save that for the next episode. My name is Saren, and thanks for tuning in.